The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, I'm Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of July 15th, 2019. On this week's show, we'll talk about your 2019 Wimbledon victors, Novak Djokovic and Simona Halep, and your 2019 Wimbledon runners-up, Roger Federer and Serena Williams. Sam Anderson will also join us to discuss Russell Westbrook's move from Oklahoma City to Houston and the end of a remarkable and championship-free era for the Thunder. Finally, baseball historian John Thorne will be here to assess the life of his friend Jim Bouton, who died last week at the age of 80, as well as the legacy of Bouton's book, Ball Four. I am the author of the book, The Queen, The Forgotten Life Behind an American Myth, and joining me in the Washington, D.C. studio is Stefan Fatsis. He's the author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic Books. Stefan. No subtitles for me. I'll just sit this one out. (laughs) You know, when you have multiple books, you don't get subtitles. Welcome back from France. Thanks. Great to see you. Great to be back. Uh, Victory tour continues. You're going to be in Kansas City, San Jose. Tallahassee. (laughs) Just look out for for Stefan wherever uh, you want to celebrate fans of the U.S. women's national team. I'll be there. Nashville, Tuscaloosa, (laughs) mostly in the South. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire. By famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. Let's talk about tennis, shall we? On Sunday, Novak Djokovic beat Roger Federer 7-6-1-6-7-6-4-6-13-12, winning Wimbledon, clinching his 16th major title in the first ever fifth set tiebreaker in a Grand Slam final. Also, fifth set Scorigami. Stefan. It looks really weird. 13-12. Wimbledon went to a 12-12 tiebreaker just starting this year. Djokovic saved two match points against Federer earlier in the fifth set, making him the first man to win a major final after being down match point since 2004. That was Gaston Gaudio. Who could forget? At the French Open. First at Wimbledon since Bob Falkenberg in 1948. This was a crazy-ass match, Stefan. Longest ever Wimbledon men's singles final, four hours, 57 minutes. Maybe perhaps in the conversation for being one of the best matches ever. And Djokovic, as he so often done, won the damn thing, despite the whole crowd being against him. And despite having been outplayed, it was evident to me watching this match. And I watched it uninterrupted on DVR, skipping the commercials, but not jumping from point to point. Almost every metric was pro Federer. Total points won, 218 to 204. Net points won, break points won, receiving points won. First serves in, winners 94 to 54, aces 25 to 10. Federer won 36 non-tiebreak games to 29 for Novak. I noticed that you corrected this stat in your excellent piece on Slate about the match to 32 games for Djokovic. I was obsessing about this during the match. Tiebreak games are not games. They're not real games. They're different. All right. 36 to 29. He looked dominant, and there were moments in this match when Djokovic looked vulnerable particularly in the second set, obviously, which he lost 1-6, but other moments. And I guess this is a, a Djokovic trait, 
sort of looking like everything is falling apart and fretting and pacing and getting mad. But then the flip side of that is that Djokovic seems to find a way, very frustrating if you're a Federer fan, finds a way, some resolve to pull through this. Yeah, he went away in the second set for sure. And Federer had similarly lost a 6-1 set to Nadal in the semifinals. This happens to the greatest players in the game. But Djokovic has an ability over more than a decade at this point to play his best when that is what's required. I wrote in my piece about the match, if he isn't the greatest player of all time, he's the greatest at summoning greatness. And that's what he did in this match. Federer won 218 points to 204 in the match and Djokovic beat him and the tiebreakers 21 to 12 and Federer didn't play well in the tiebreakers. The tie There's some, you know, you can certainly look at it through um, the Federer lens and say that those tiebreakers were more about Federer not playing well than Djokovic really redlining his game. As they say, Federer made four backhand unforced errors in the third set tiebreaker. It was not good for him. But you have to give Djokovic credit for staying in rallies long enough and playing clean tennis and and not committing theirs. And then in the fifth side tiebreaker, which was the kind of ultimate pressure moment in the history of men's Grand Slam tennis, there had never been a winner take all tiebreaker before. Djokovic played aggressively. He hit winners. He forced Federer into errors. And he was awesome. He was the best of himself. And then obviously we have to talk about Saving those two That's match what I was points. just going like to ask about. Is, that's a thing that Djokovic has done before, too. In the 2010 and 2011 U.S. Opens against Federer, he saved two match points in each of those matches. This is a thing that in the moment feels extraordinary and unprecedented. Like, how could this possibly happen? And yet, in this exact matchup, Djokovic has done it now three times. It is really, really remarkable. And in this match, it came at... Federer had 8-7 with his serve in the fifth set. And as I was watching them, my first reaction was, why did Federer do that? And on one of those points, Federer came into net and Djokovic passed him on his forehand side across court. And it just felt like, oh, you're squandering this, Roger. Why not sit back? Why not? I mean, it's impossible to sort of deconstruct these split-second decisions that athletes make. I mean, the reality is that Federer may have ended the match right there had he hit the ball a quarter of an inch differently on his serve because he was serving terrifically in this match. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is ex post facto analysis. When I watched that point again, I saw Federer made a first serve. This is at 40-30, Made a first serve but missed his spot. It did not go right down the tee. It went to Djokovic's forehand. Djokovic blocks the ball back, and it's not a great return. Federer hits an approach shot, and he again misses his spot. He doesn't hit it into the forehand corner, doesn't hit it into the backhand corner. He a little hits bit it too much down the center. A little bit too much down the center. And he rushes forward and forces Djokovic to hit not the best shot of his life, not the best shot of anyone's life, but a very good, sharply angled shot that passed Federer cross-court. And it's a shot where... The argument is put the player under stress, make him at this moment do this thing that is very hard to do. You know, in the previous game when Federer had broken, he had passed Djokovic at the net 
on breakpoint. I remember, I don't remember exactly when it came on in the match, but I remember Djokovic saving a breakpoint when he rushed the net against Federer and Federer couldn't execute the passing shot. And so it's not a dumb play by any means. As a Federer fan, you slash I would have liked to have seen him hit a better serve and hit a better approach. But, you know, in these matches, and Federer's beaten Djokovic in majors. Uh, He's beaten Djokovic, I think, 22 times. It's not like Djokovic beats him every single time that they play. But just in these very memorable events, Djokovic has come through with the goods like time and time again. Right. He knows how to do this in these moments that matter the most. And that is what is most impressive about him. And if you're not a fan of his, like pretty much everybody that was in the arena at Wimbledon on Sunday, it's enormously frustrating to watch because it felt inevitable to me that Federer was going to have to have something happen to allow him to win the match because I knew that Djokovic was returning everything and finding summoning ways to stay in it. The really dramatic part of this match and what I think makes it one of the all-time greatest is that you know, the, the marks against it are that the tiebreakers weren't very well played or even like close, close that the second set was kind of garbage because Federer broke Djokovic three times. But in the fifth set, you know, for all of your saying that this was inevitable, Federer came back from 4-2 down, mm-hmm. broke Djokovic, and then broke him again and served for the match, got broken, and then it went to tiebreaker. Like, there were twists and turns. Right. And, you know, you could have said that I believed when Federer was down 4-2 that it was over, but it wasn't. And so saying that it was inevitable at any point is really not true, even if ultimately looking back on it, it feels like it was. Maybe it's just like worrying because you know that Roger Federer is 37, about to turn 38, and that Djokovic is more than five years younger than he is, and that Federer is not going to have many more opportunities like this, though we've been saying that for five years now. But it's really more true now than it was five years sure. ago. Sure. But the remarkable it's thing ap- to me about this approaching is truth. that you look at their runs through Wimbledon, and Djokovic had a much easier path to the final because of all of the young players getting bounced early in this tournament, the young stars. I don't know who was on that side of the bracket, but... Zverev and Tsitsipas and others all went out pretty early. Felix. And Roger Federer had a slightly more difficult path to the final, up until the semifinals anyway, where he had to play Nadal. But neither of them, including the match against Nadal, was tested in the way that they tested each other. They never, neither of them had a five-set match going into the final. And to have this absolute feast of skill in the final and have it play out the way it did with four incredibly taut close sets out of five and this crazy new rule that allows for this 13 to 12 outcome in the fifth set. Even having that happen, getting to that fifth set tiebreaker with this new rule was insane. And having the crowd be so pro-Federer and then listening to Djokovic afterward talk about the way that he has to channel that in order to help him win. When they chant Roger, I hear Novak. He says that in the press conference, the press laughs, but he wasn't joking. Like He was serious that that's what he does. Let me read from Brian Phillips' great piece 
in The Ringer, um, he says that to Djokovic's fans, his relative unpopularity has to do with American and Western European chauvinism and the reluctance of privileged fans like Stefan Fatsis, that's in brackets, Mm -hmm. from traditional tennis countries to see a Serb gate crash the glass tower of Nadal and Federer. Greece being my country. Um, (laughs) To everyone else... It has to do with Djokovic being kind of smug and needy and stressful to watch and the way he seems like he's a little too desperate for you to like him and the way he rips his shirt off when he's furious and the way he smirks and bellows and hams it up for the crowd in ways the crowd didn't ask for and doesn't especially want. And Brian writes, let's say both sides have a point. You know, Nick Kyrgios has said that he finds Djokovic cringeworthy and that it's pathetic how he wants to be loved. A sick obsession. Like, like Roger. You know, Kyrgios is a jerk, but he's not always wrong. And I think, but but it's human. Like, how could you blame him for not wanting to be loved like Roger Federer has been loved over his career? And when he's clearly, Djokovic, been the best player in the world for years now. You know, I can't remember who said it, but you could argue that Djokovic's peak now, his decade-long peak, is longer than Federer's. If you're Djokovic, yes, there has to be resentment that Roger Federer was playing tennis at the same time you were playing tennis. I mean, we don't look at Pete Sampras and say, oh, he was needy and boring. We don't look at Bjorn Borg even and say— Well, Sampras wasn't needy in the way that Djokovic is needy. But he was dull, and I don't know that we would have viewed Djokovic as needy had he played in an era where he wasn't— overshadowed or had to share the stage with not only Federer, but Nadal as well. I don't think that's right, because I think that players like Yvonne Lindahl, for instance, who were unloved, didn't court the affection of fans in the way that Djokovic has. Like when Kyrgios talks about— But would he be doing that if if Federer didn't exist? I'm not sure, but that's a different question. I mean, the stuff that Kyrgios is talking about is Djokovic like blowing kisses to— the crowd, and then at the U.S. Open in 2011, raising his arms when he hit a winner to save match point, and and you know putting his hand to his ear to try to get the fans to cheer for him. He has a really kind of he's funny. He in a lot of ways has a really winning personality. He does impressions of other players that are amusing, and so I think the fact that he does have these these qualities and he does have he's a good you know spokesperson for himself and for the game and how that even that isn't enough must be super galling but it seems thirsty for sure like and i thought I, I was looking back at this profile that lauren collins did in the new yorker in 2013 and she put it really well saying that the paradox of djokovic's career is that the better he does, the less he is liked. Full stop. She goes on to say, and this is important context, I really love that sentence, but the full context is, at least among those who cling to the binary model perpetuated by Federer and Nadal, by a fault of timing, he is the forever crasher, the automatic odd man out. Yeah, he's the third wheel. And we don't want three. We want Federer to get to 25 and 26 and 27. We would have liked that for Federer because he was such a – because of who he is, the grace and the, the and the composure and the gentlemanliness. And the Federer and Nadal match in the semifinal was a semifinal because Djokovic is number one and they are now number two and number three. And so when Federer and Nadal are playing for the first time at Wimbledon since 2008, it is at once – an amazing and historic moment for tennis, for tennis fans. It was a remarkable match, well played. And you could see the evolution of Federer as a player 
um, how his game has changed. Particularly and, on the backhand, as you wrote in your in your summary of the match. And yet, for all of that, it was, you know, a match for who was going to be runner-up in the end because of Djokovic. Yeah. And yeah, I think it's right that a certain segment, very large segment of tennis fandom is not going to forgive him for that. Okay, let's talk about Serena Williams and Simona Halep. Halep won very easily in a not entertaining match in under an hour, uh, 6-2, 6-2. It was Halep's second Grand Slam title, and there's a v- obvious huge story there. We've talked about Halep before on this podcast, and I think of particular interest, Stefan, is how she declared publicly that this was going to be her chill year, that she was not going to put pressure on herself as she had in the past, that she was going to enjoy tennis, and that she is somebody, it seems, who has willed herself to be able to enjoy the sport. And that is, as we discussed on this podcast with Louisa Thomas, who profiled Halep, that's a great thing to see. It's sort of what do we like more than seeing athletes who are self-aware and manage to change, and then achieve. Um, And that's what Simona Halep has done. I mean, she demolished Serena in this match. Three unforced errors the entire match. Um, It was not close from the beginning. You did not have the sense that Serena was going to get back into this. Serena has a history of making comebacks, and you're never sure when she's on the court what you're going to get from her. But Halep didn't change. No. And you're also never sure that, especially somebody who has a history of being nervous by her own admission and in major finals. She didn't know that she was going to be able to keep up her level, but she did. It was 14 winners versus three unforced errors for Halep and 16 winners versus 27 unforced for Serena. In her post-match interview, Serena said that Halep played unbelievable, played out of her mind, and it's true, but Serena played really badly. And... Um, she has now, after going 21 and four in slam finals to start her career, 21 and four, she's now two and five in her last seven since 2016. And four of those, she's lost matches in straight sets. The Osaka one was obviously very weird, but she was getting outplayed. And there's no circumstance, as, as Serena herself has admitted, that she would have won that match no matter what happened with the umpire. She's about to turn 38 herself. And there's not going to be more, a lot more chances for her. And one level, it's remarkable that she was even there because she didn't play. You know, she's had a knee injury and hasn't played much this year. And yet, and yet. <laughs> and yet. And I think that the difference to me, anyway, between Serena getting to these finals and Federer getting to these finals is that Federer plays more. And you don't feel like Federer has come and gone. I mean, Serena had a baby. Um Serena's had injuries. Serena has not played very much and has a history of not playing much um, outside of the Grand Slams. And for her to even make it to the finals of Wimbledon the last two years and the U.S. Open last year strikes me as pretty damn remarkable. And losing these matches, I think narratively we want to be a referendum on her entire career and can she win the 24th to tie Margaret Court? But who gives a shit about Margaret Court's titles? They were all Australian in the 1960s. That is very true, but she has imposed that narrative on herself. Sure. That's something she wants really desperately. 
So you're saying that if she wants that narrative very desperately, she needs to find a way to get over the hump in these finals, that something is going I mean, wrong. I'm not saying that. Well, that you... something is clearly going wrong in these finals for her, and it could be well, just— Well, she's losing them. Yeah. She, you don't, you don't want to do that. You don't want to go out there and lose. I mean, I think a couple things are going on. I think in this year's Wimbledon and last year's Wimbledon, she faced only one seeded player on her path to the final. In both cases, Julia Gerges, who's like not— the right. world's greatest player of all time. She's fine. But, um, you know, there is some luck of the draw there. Perhaps she wouldn't have made it to the final if she had had a tougher draw. And perhaps it wasn't great for her in the end not to have been tested very much on the way to the final. You know, Simona Halep in women's tennis in the past couple of years has been the ultimate test. And she's somebody who requires of her opponent um you know she she retrieves everything and so you have to be able to put her away and serena wasn't able to do it she had a lot of opportunities and would you know hit swinging volleys into the net i mean she just wasn't up to the task and so serena has talked about playing more events in order to sharpen up for these finals on the one hand i think it is really crazy that she has made all of these slam finals and I wouldn't have expected her to make the Wimbledon final but I do think it's just perhaps it maybe would have been more flattering to her and more representative of her current abilities given her recovery from injury given her long layoff to like lose in the quarterfinals to you know Halop or lose in the you know in the semis to whoever um you know, it, it's almost like by virtue of her being in the final and her history, you're just like, all right, she's just going to steamroll the competition. And she's just not quite there yet. Right. When when Serena Williams gets to a final, your, your feeling is that she has already steamrolled everybody. Why should she stop now? And it doesn't really matter who's on the other side. There was the some steamroll. There was some light steamrolling. I mean, she she steamrolled Barbara Streaksova in the semifinals, but Streaksova is unseated and had never been to a slam semi before. And so, you know, you're not sure how to right. evaluate that as you're watching it. But, you know, U.S. Open is going to be totally fascinating for her and for the world this year to see, you know, how she's received. She's going to be received rapturously, obviously, but like how she plays, how she deals with all the questions and the memories of that event. We'll be watching. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Last week, in what seemed inevitable after the Oklahoma City Thunder traded Paul George to the Clippers for a bunch of draft picks, the Thunder parted ways with their talismanic triple-double-tastic point guard Russell Westbrook, sending him to Houston for Chris Paul and a bunch more draft picks. What this means for the Rockets and their championship aspirations, we'll have to see. But for Oklahoma City, this is very clearly the end of an era, one that began with homegrown stars Kevin Durant, Westbrook, and James Harden leading the Thunder to the finals in 2012, and that ended with Westbrook the last man standing in what became a basketball-mad town. 
Joining us now to talk about that town and Russell Westbrook is Sam Anderson. Sam is a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine and the author of Boomtown, the fantastical saga of Oklahoma City, its chaotic founding, its apocalyptic weather, its purloined basketball team, and the dream of becoming a world-class metropolis. One of the best books of 2018 and an honoree in the anthology Best American Subtitles. Sam, <laughs> welcome to the show. Thank you for uh, making me read that subtitle. Oh, thank you for doing it. Um, I haven't actually read it all the way through in about a year, so it's great to hear it. What did you call Westbrook? A talismanic, triple-double, riffic something or other? That was nice. Triple-double-tastic, yeah. Oh, okay. I went, that I, was nice. I went for it. Um, yeah. You write a huge amount about the thunder in your book. You also wrote a profile of Westbrook for The Times in 2017. In that piece, you said, referring to OKC and Westbrook, Sometimes a place and a person align in unexpectedly powerful ways. What did you mean by that? What were the powerful ways they aligned? In the beginning, Westbrook was kind of the most puzzling and infuriating superstar, young superstar on that budding dynasty in Oklahoma City. By the end, Westbrook was just the living embodiment of the spirit of Oklahoma City. And it seemed perfectly apt that he was the one who stayed out of those three guys. I mean, Part of this is the bizarre, almost like mythological history of Oklahoma City, which, which to give a very quick thumbnail sketch, was born super late in American history, 1889. It was born in a single day. It was kind of the most chaotic and um, worst executed founding of a city in world history. People just raced across the prairie to found, to claim land, and in the process of doing that, made this sort of chaotic pile that became Oklahoma City. And that spirit of chaotic frontier gambling wildness has really defined Oklahoma City since then. And Westbrook, of course, is the perfect embodiment, perfect carrier of that flag, because the way he plays was exactly that. He's just sort of charging across the open prairie of the basketball court gambling and and looking for territory that he can claim as his own that no one else would would ever think to go near that is probably a bad idea to go after and yet somehow at his best he was able to get it he was able to make things turn into good ideas that were really really objectively bad ideas but why i think is the question did westbrook want to stay i mean it's one thing to talk about how his style of play suited the image of the city and the founding of the city it's another for a guy that is a, a bona fide nba superstar to stay in a city that is obviously not on either coast and especially to stay after these two legendary players uh durant and harden had moved on yeah, that was one of the great narrative twists in this whole saga, was that after the other two were gone, after Durant had spurned Oklahoma City, and it seemed like they were destined to try to rebuild somehow, um, Westbrook doubled down and he stayed. And in a way, that was, I mean, it was at the same time, the craziest gamble he could have made. If anyone were going to do that, it would be Russell Westbrook. Um, but it was also, I think it touched something deep inside of him, which is a side of Westbrook that people don't always see or appreciate. He is incredibly, some might say obsessively organized and routine based. This guy does not like change. He grew up in a very, very tight family in Los Angeles. 
where his father sort of kind of to protect his kids, I think, kept them very close and ran Westbrook through military style basketball drills for his entire childhood. And Westbrook, by all accounts, was just absolutely up for it. I mean, this is a guy who eats the same peanut butter and jelly sandwich prepared exactly the same way, cut on a diagonal before every game, um, who who has these like specific times bef- as the countdown clock runs towards tip off that he does specific things to get ready for the game. He has the same parking spot um, at the practice facility. He just doesn't like change. And so I think that was something that really appealed to him about Oklahoma City. I think he liked that it was counterintuitive and that he was doubling down and showing this loyalty to this place that people probably didn't think from the outside deserved his loyalty. There's a kind of defiance in that decision to stay. And as you describe, and you know, as Brian Curtis has written about in The Ringer as well, this is a franchise that is willing to do anything and everything to cater to its superstars and then to its lone superstar. You write about how Westbrook essentially controls the whole operation and was really domineering in a way that you could understand why maybe Kevin Durant, even if he liked Russell Westbrook, would want to go off on his own just because Russ's personality kind of filled up the whole space of the arena or the entire city. And the Brian Curtis thing that I was referencing is, you know, how that franchise has historically protected um, players from the media and allowed them to feel like um, the team is like a safe space away from the prying questions of reporters. And I guess maybe Oklahoma City felt like a safe city, too, just because of how much they loved Westbrook just for the mere act of being there. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. It it was a safe space. And that was something you heard a lot, especially in the early days when those three young stars were there, that Oklahoma City was unique as a basketball city in that it was almost like this basketball boot camp. There was nothing else to do. You couldn't get distracted by parties and fashion shoots and all that stuff. Um, you were there to perfect your craft and particularly Durant and Westbrook were notoriously hard workers and who were in the gym, you know, at the proverbial, you know, you know um, as the sun rose and working on their jumpers and whatnot. So, so yeah, there was a kind of like safe cocoon like element to Oklahoma city and had things broken differently. Westbrook might've stayed forever. He is, as you said, an exhausting personality. And I think after a certain point, maybe that started wearing down even this kind of perfect cocoon inside Oklahoma City. Wearing down for whom? For the franchise? For the fans? For him? All of the above and more. Yeah. (laughs) I think everybody. I think it just became exhausting. I mean, to live like Russell Westbrook, to be a fan of Russell Westbrook is exhausting. And so whatever comes next, it'll be easier than that in certain ways. So Paul George left on the one-year anniversary of Paul George Day. (laughs) The mayor, David Holt, issued a proclamation, Paul George is here to stay in recognition of PG-13's commitment to our city and anticipating 
And in anticipation of the journey ahead, I am declaring Saturday, July 7th to be Paul George Day in Oklahoma City. So I knew about that. Everybody made light of that. What I hadn't remembered or realized, Sam, is that the previous mayor had declared Russell Westbrook Day in 2017. But not only did he declare Russell Westbrook Day, he said in an act that I think might be unprecedented, quote, Uh every day is Russell Westbrook Day. (laughs) Exactly. That's such a perfect illustration of the they went big. total exhaustion of loving Russell Westbrook. It's like we love him so much. Every moment of our lives is now dedicated to him. But there's something that's both kind of charming about the connection between these players and this city and something kind of pathetic about it, too. Just like with with George in particular, like you can understand Westbrook. The guy had been there forever he did great things over many years and led the team and the city to glory. And had, earned, with, and had earned the city's loyalty by staying for as long as he did. And But with George, it's just like, you're like that, you know, happy that, that, that this guy is, a, is around. Like, it just feels like kind of <laughs> the, the team and, and the city and its fans are maybe asking and expecting too much of these players, especially in the player empowerment era, there's going to just be like a lot of disappointment in store for uh, Oklahoma City fans in the years to come. Well, I have to wonder whether being so nakedly desperate about catering to someone like Russell Westbrook's personality, which as Sam, you just said, is exhausting. Is there a fear that we can't recreate this? Our colleague Joel Anderson tweeted that he wonders whether the NBA can even survive in Oklahoma City, which I think is a little bit overstated because of the way that franchises are funded and salary caps work. But there has to be thinking there, even if you're optimistic and you're Sam Presti, the general manager, and you've hoarded all these draft picks and you're doing a classic rebuild, that can we ever persuade players of this caliber to come here and energize this fan base, which is... You know, it's not the biggest fan base in America, but it's a very loyal fan base. And there's just enough corporate money and enough season ticket buying potential to make it work. Yeah, I wouldn't go so far as being worried if the franchise can survive there. I do think um, there is some truth to this sort of PR, PRE sounding notion that the city and the team have a special connection that runs quite a bit deeper than most cities and most teams. Um, And I think the moment you see some of this kindling that Sam Presti has collected in the form of future draft picks um, start to spark and burn, you'll see that passion come back completely. Um, I mean, it was really, that's how Oklahoma City earned a team was they kind of auditioned by adopting the New Orleans Hornets after Hurricane Katrina, and they just blew the league's mind with the level of local support that was there. They'd never really seen anything like it. Um, So I wouldn't underestimate the people of Oklahoma City, and I wouldn't underestimate Sam Presti's ability to, to reboot and set the team up for a second, you know, sort of dynasty chance at a second dynasty. It's funny to talk about that first team as as a dynasty. That's how we talked about it in 2012. And then, of course, it immediately started like the wheels started coming off and they were furiously slapping the back on. And it was like, 
a contender for many, 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 many seasons that just never quite got over the top. Yeah, Zach Lowe and ESPN and his piece about the trade argued that the two biggest inflection points for the entire NBA in the last, I guess, seven years now are Oklahoma City trading Harden Mm -hmm. to Houston in 2012 after losing the finals to the Miami Heat and then Oklahoma City losing the Western Conference Finals to Golden State in 2016, and then Durant leaving for Golden State afterwards. Let's talk about the Harden trade first. Kind of how did you come to understand that moment when you were working on the book, both for Oklahoma City and for the fans of the team? It's complicated. And I think it's something that's been turned into like this cartoon narrative that, um, Sam Presti was sitting on a, on a dynasty and squandered it for no reason or squandered it for the greediness of the owners or whatever. I think one of the big worries that doesn't get talked about a lot was just the fit, the actual on-court fit and off-court fit between Kevin Durant, Russell Westbrook, and James Harden. Um, you know, the team that went to the finals in 2012, Harden was the sixth man. And it was unclear at that point how good he was. It was clear that he was very good. He was he was like setting these efficiency records. I mean, he was like like Wilt Chamberlain plus in terms of scoring efficiency on the floor in somewhat limited time. So the question was, well, do we have on our hands a third actual legitimate like top five league superstar player? Or do we have this kind of super sub who... If you put him on his own team and gave him the full spotlight, you know, his his counting numbers would go way up, but his efficiency would would come down back to earth. And that was kind of the bet, I think, that the Thunder franchise made and that Presti made was like, this guy is not the next Michael Jordan. This guy's not like a revolutionary player who's going to change everything. And Harden had 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 in all of his talks with them during the draft and everything, he had really volunteered for that sixth man role for that supplemental role. And they thought they had found the perfect supplementary star to back up the superstars of, of Duran and Westbrook. When Harden got that good, it was really a problem and they had to figure out how do we balance these three guys? Because we have three ball dominant generational talents and how do they share the floor and how do they all stay happy? And I think there were really strong indications that James Harden was not going to stay happy in that role of being the third wheel and that he really wanted his own team. I think that's a stronger element in that story than people realize is that James Harden wanted to become the James Harden that we see today, who is absolutely a transformational, revolutionary basketball talent who's changed how offense and defense is played in the NBA and who took that that efficiency and just ramped it right up to like maximum usage. Um, I don't think they realized they had this like mythical godlike player on their team. I don't think anyone knew quite how good James Harden was. I guess it would have played out differently if Harden had just like a normal superstar publicly demanded a trade and insisted that he wanted to leave rather than management intuiting that that's what he wanted. And now James Harden and Russell Westbrook are reunited, which should be very interesting. Uh, in Zach Lowe's piece, he uh, quoted Houston's general manager, Daryl Morey, the other day saying that Harden told him when they were discussing 
the fact that they would be reunited. I know how to play with Russ, and he knows how to play with me, which seems like a rather simplistic um, right. conclusion. <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah, you want to ask, like, do you? <laughs> do you? Is there, really? Um, yeah, apparently they, I guess they have both been banging the drum to play with each other. They really want to do this. To me, it doesn't work at all. And I think we're going to see a lot of what Sam Presti was wary of when he initially traded James Harden, because now those guys since 2012 have become like the, the super max versions of themselves back then, which is to say they both need the ball at all times. Um, and I don't know how they, how they function together. That's also the most unrealistic plot twist in this whole thing. I frankly, I don't believe it. <laughs> all right. We can't leave this segment without noting the purloined part of the subtitle. Uh-huh. The fact that this team was formerly the Seattle Supersonics. Um, can we have a ruling on whether Sonics fans, I, we don't even need a ruling. Sonics fans are obviously allowed to feel schadenfreude for everything that happens to this franchise oh, until I- the end of time. But how did you come to think about the Seattleness of Oklahoma City Thunder and how the fact that this franchise came from another place fits into their identity in the city and the way that fans perceive them? I mean, yes. Number one, Seattle fans are entitled to not only lifetimes, but but generations of future schadenfreude and should be angry forever. From the Oklahoma City perspective, it's again, it's, it's kind of perfect that they went out and took a team from another larger, more developed, more legitimate city. They have, as you were talking about before, this incredible inferiority complex in Oklahoma City because they were formed in such a chaotic, crazy way so late in American history. They've always been desperate to be taken seriously. And in the United States, being taken seriously as a city means having a professional sports team. They weren't going to get one in any normal way. They tried their hardest to lure an NHL team and struck out in a very embarrassing way. And so for them to be able to go and grab this established franchise with all these iconic players and just take it and plant it in Oklahoma City is sort of like the perfect. It's like it's like the sports version of the land run, you know, sort of haha, we have your thing and now it's over here and we're going to make it our thing. Presti and that organization and those iconic players really established an identity there in Oklahoma City. And like, and, you know, we like to laugh about the Harden trade. We like to make fun of them for various things. That team was a superpower. Like I was there in 2016 during the playoffs when they took they won two home games in a row to take a 3-1 lead over the Warriors, the Warriors team that had just won 73 games. That's the best basketball team I've ever seen in my life. Um, they mopped the floor with those Warriors and looked to be charging ahead to a championship. Like, I I left Oklahoma City thinking, I just saw the championship-winning team. I can't believe it's happening. And then, of course, Klay Thompson hit a million threes, and the Warriors came back, and it was this big tragedy, and Durant left. That's when Durant left. Um, But that team, the team after the Harden trade, actually, was better than the team with Harden um, that year. People forget that. And then Westbrook blew out his knee in the playoffs against the Houston Rockets and that kind of scuttled that. So they had these touches of crushingly bad luck that I think had they not had, they, they couldn't have had one or two championships in Oklahoma city and it kind of changed the whole story. 
You can read more about the thunder in Sam's book, Boomtown. If you want to hear the subtitle, you can rewind to the beginning <laughs> of the segment. Um, you should also check out his Westbrook profile. We will link to that on our show page. And it includes one of my favorite sections in any magazine story ever, which is the one where Russell Westbrook tells a series of children to tie their shoes. Yeah, the book bus. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, I love that. <laughs> thank you for writing that. And thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much. It was fun. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing sports stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for amazing sports stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Before we get to our conversation with John Thorne about Jim Bouton and Ball Four, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Stefan and I will discuss if we could win a point off Serena Williams, 12% of men said they could in a recent poll. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. Jim Bouton pitched two great seasons for the New York Yankees in the early 1960s, and then his arm was mostly done, which turned out to be great in the end for him and for American culture. That's because after the Yankees dumped him, Bouton wrote Ball Four. The diary of Bouton's 1969 season with the Seattle Pilots, Vancouver Mounties, and Houston Astros would shock and outrage the baseball establishment, sell millions of copies, add the words shit fuck and fuck shit to the lexicon, be judged the number three sports book of all time by Sports Illustrated and a book of the century by the New York Public Library and alter forever the way sports writers write about and fans think about sports, this sports writer and fan included. Jim Bouton died last week at the age of 80. John Thorne, the official historian for Major League Baseball, was a very close friend of Bouton's for many years. He is here now. John, thank you for joining us. Sure. Glad to recall, Jim. Like so many other people, John, I first read Ball Four when I was in my teens, and also like so many other people, it changed me. It was profane and hilarious and irreverent, which validated a particular teenage way of thinking. But more important, it was honest. It demystified baseball, and it made me love baseball even more than I already did, which was a lot. What was it about Bouton's personality that made him the right athlete at the right time to do this? It's not too much to call him the uh, boy in the emperor's new clothes. I mean, he, he's the guy who pointed out all of the failings and foibles of the ordinary human beings who have populated the baseball landscape. That the mythology that we were handed down, or even the so-called true stories as in Sport Magazine, were not true enough. So the stuff that Bowden revealed in the book 
whether it was players cheating on their wives, players taking amphetamines, Mickey Mantle playing hungover. You can understand how this sort of stuff might appeal to those like Stefan Fatsis who wanted to know the truth about what was happening in locker rooms and clubhouses. And it humanized players, you know, for they were human. They weren't necessarily great people or, or evil people. They were just people. But there was a certain group of folks who read this book and hated it. Yes. And hated what Bowden revealed. Like, how would you characterize the folks who were upset about Balfour and why they were upset? Well, uh, Commissioner Bowie Kuhn called uh, Bowden into his office and tried to strong-arm him into saying it was all Schechter's fault, that, that the sections related to the foibles of his teammates were all fiction. Leonard Schechter, uh, Bowden's co-writer. Yes. That's or editor, right. as Bowden called him. Yes. And I think editor is much better than co-writer, because I don't think Schechter contributed anything original to the book, but rather shaped the audio tapes. And Kuhn tried to get Bowton to say that he was sorry for having written the book. And Bowton, of course, would have none of that. And one of the most interesting things about this, and I, I don't remember this, I didn't remember this until I read uh, Bowton's sequel to Ball Four, which he published the next year, which describes the reaction to the book, was that Bowton brought with him to that meeting Marvin Miller, who was the head of the Players Association. And Another thing I didn't really appreciate was the way that Ball Four is rooted in the slow march toward player rights, that it was an important inflection point for the sport. A few years later, players would get free agency. Marvin Miller would lead that charge. And during the Andy Messersmith hearings on free agency, Miller actually quoted from Ball Four. Uh, Yeah, I I think... uh... You know, Miller came on board in, what, 66, I think, and Bowden's book came out in 1970, and by 74, 75, you had free agency. So it sits square in the middle. And all these years later, more important than the beaver shooting or the greenie taking, was uh, this ironic, Huck Finn childlike stance that Bowden took toward grown-ups altogether, not merely the baseball players. Yeah, he told that he said that he wanted to, to knock down heroes. He didn't like phonies, phony heroes. Curious, Stefan, for how you position this book with your work, particularly a few seconds of panic, because there's some obvious, very, very obvious surface level connections there. But one of the things that you wrote about so well in, in your work is sort of how you felt like empathy for the players in the locker room, how the players got along, how they were smart. And I, I didn't get the sense that you felt alienated in that locker room in the same way that Bowden, who was an actual Major League Baseball player, felt alienated in his own locker room. Like, how do you square those things? Well, I think that Bowden felt alienated because he was different. He wasn't trying to assimilate. I mean, he, but he also admitted in, in Ball 4 that for once he was going to try to be one of the guys. <laughs> um, and he was criticized for that by the likes of Dick Young, who I'm going to talk about in, later on in the show. Um, 
but to me, what Boughton did was the service that Boughton did was that he allowed the players to be themselves. He did it sort of clandestinely. I was there in the guise of I was a reporter. They knew I was taking notes and recording their their words. And what Boughton, I think, helped to do, in addition to sort of reshaping the way athletes conceived of their memoirs and the way that fans embraced those kinds of memoirs with candor, with honesty, with openness, um, you know, what Boughton was able to do was show the frailties of the players and make everybody accepting of them, himself first and foremost. I mean— in rereading Ball Four over the years, and I've probably read it eight or ten times, what comes through to me, John, is that ultimately, when you get past, as you said, the beaver shooting and the greenie taking, this is a really sad book. This is about a man sort of reckoning with his failures, with his with his departure from this this profession that he loves so much. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jim Jim was on the downside of his career. After 1965, right, and he continued to pitch, and it didn't didn't matter whether it was independent league, whether it was beer ball league, or whether it was a promotional return under Ted Turner's Atlanta Braves in '78, where he actually won a game and threw six shutout innings, or at least six innings with no earned runs, as I recall. So uh, Jim Jim loves the game. He loves the game more, I think. Than Elston Howard more than uh, Mickey Mantle. I think uh, Jim was never quite ready to let it go. So that's why he was still pitching in his seventies. When, as a historian, John, you've looked at kind of myths about baseball going back to the nineteenth century, were there kind of Bowton-like figures? before Bowden in terms of folks when you're like trying to look back and see like what was actually happening in the game who did kind of tell it like it was in an earlier era? No, I, I think even though we have baseball autobiographies or nominal autobiographies as early as King Kelly's uh, play ball in 1888, they were all ghosted. The first book that I'm aware of that a ball player actually wrote was Jim Brosnan, and this is 1960. And there were plenty of, you know, Christy Mathewson, Crapola, uh, <laughs> memoirs and recollections and anecdotes. And this is, in a way, the, the core of the game. This is the myth, the sustaining myth that attaches, uh, we, attaches us as kids to baseball and hardwires that for us as adults. And historically, I wonder, particularly post-Bouton, why that was the case. Why do we want to cling to these myths? Because, you know, what Ball 4 revealed was the human foibles of these athletes, but also the reality of the game, that a lot of it was boring, <laughs> that, that the athletes do a lot of stupid shit in the locker room and in hotels, the stuff that nobody wanted to admit. I mean, the most insightful parts of Ball 4 are just the ones where Bouton is describing how you practice and play, you know, looking yeah. busy so the coaches don't think that you're, you know, lollygagging, um, chatter in the infield, that coaches will think is, you know, equal to good performance. Um, just the way that you sort of, the, the psychological games that players have to play with coaches and managers. 
Well, I think the word you just used, performance, is interesting. I think the word player is interesting. That practitioners of the baseball trade were understood as entertainers, were understood as allied with actors and actresses about whose private lives uh, we might speculate but never really know the truth. I think Jim understood, while many of his teammates did not, that all the world's in stage and we are but, but players and we pass through. And it is the stage that counts rather than the individual player. What was the effect on Ben's relationships with his teammates and with players in Major League Baseball more broadly, both at the time and down the line, like as he left the game? He was ostracized for sure at the outset. Fellow Yankees wouldn't speak with him. Even his pilot and Astro uh, teammates, once they realized that he was taking notes, wouldn't go out to dinner with him. I think this mellowed over time. Mickey Mantle uh, left a phone message, uh, which is preserved now at the Library of Congress, which, which has uh, taken Jim's papers, and that announcement only came on Monday, uh, with Jim dying on Wednesday, that um, Mantle felt that uh, not, it wasn't so much that he had forgiven Bowden as he never thought it was that big a deal. And yet the Yankees allowed that to persist until Bowden's daughter was, was killed in a car crash and Bowden's son. Well, institutions are image conscious in a way that individuals may not be. Yeah. And we all tend to be more forgiving and better as people than as the institutions uh, for whom we may work. John, Bowton suffered from a, a form of dementia that, that ultimately killed him. How did he and his family handle those later years? And did Bowton sort of have this sort of, you know, was he the kind of person that was reflective about, you know, his place in American culture and what he had done to change it? I'm not sure that, that Jim would be the one to toot his own horn. I believe that Paula was certainly aware of uh, Jim's stature and standing in American culture, and the, uh, the disease that afflicted him um, resulted in ischemic incidents, uh, strokes, a series of strokes that would really flatten him, and then he would rebound within 30 to 60 days and recover a good portion of what initially had been lost. But the, uh, the long goodbye, uh, which is the Robert Altman film in which Jim had a starring role, did characterize his his last seven years. John Thorne is the official historian of Major League Baseball. John, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about your friend Jim Bowden. A great pleasure. Thank you. And now it is time for After Balls. Josh, our good friend Jonathan Hawk, has a new film uh, premiering on ESPN on Tuesday at 8 p.m. It is called The First Day, and it's a follow-up to a 30 for 30 doc that John did about uh, the former NBA player and drug addict Chris Heron about his recovery. And the new film is uh, The First Day. It's basically Chris Heron talking to kids about substance abuse, and it is incredibly moving um, and incredibly powerful. Heron is just a gifted speaker, and John stitched together this film by following Heron around to schools around the country over the course of a year. It, it, it is worth watching and it's worth showing to your high school kids and your middle school kids. So again, ESPN is going to show the first day at 8 o'clock Eastern on Tuesday 
after a special presentation of Unguarded, the first film about Chris Heron at 7 o'clock Eastern. So, Josh, why don't we just call After Balls first days? All right. What is your first day, Stefan? As we discussed earlier, Ball 4 enraged a lot of people, none more than Dick Young. Young was the pugnacious New York Daily News sports columnist who was credited with replacing the purple style of his Grantland Rice forebears with punch-in-the-face prose and also with pioneering locker room news gathering. But Young was also a conservative bore and an ownership toady. He hated Marvin Miller. He loathed soccer. He disdained activist athletes like Muhammad Ali and Joe Namath. So Young was predisposed to dislike the iconoclastic Jim Bouton. He once wrote that Bouton finds injustice wherever he looks. After excerpts of Ball Four were published in Look Magazine in May 1970, Young wrote two full columns about Bouton and mentioned him in at least two more. On May 24th, Young was tipped off that Commissioner Bowie Kuhn was going to reprimand Bouton for his mucker expose. The interesting trash certainly can be construed as detrimental to the image of baseball, Young wrote, and if the Players Association has any clues, not to mention a sense of responsibility, it also will reprimand Bouton for fifth-columning fellow members. The idea of image and betrayal was central to Young's attempt to swift boat Bouton. On May 28th, he delivered a full-length attack. Young speculated that Bouton would be fined by Kuhn. He wasn't. And that his career would end because of the book. It did end that season, but because Bouton pitched badly. Why would a ball player risk these things, Young asked. For the answer, first you must try to understand the type of man Jim Bouton is. I feel sorry for Bouton. He is a social leper, Young wrote. He didn't catch it, he developed it. His collaborator on the book, Leonard Schechter, is a social leper. People like this, embittered people, sit down in their time of deepest rejection and write. They write, oh hell, everybody stinks, everybody but me, and it makes them feel much better. In Ball 4, Bouton admitted that he was an outsider with the Yankees and pledged to try to fit in better with Seattle. So Young smart-acidly accused him of being a hypocrite. That tells you something about Jim Bouton, he wrote. He is willing to surrender his proud individuality in order to survive. If a man is such a superior individual, why does he bother to hang on for another year in such a shabby environment? Surely a man of his high intelligence, his drive, his nobility of purpose can make $27,000 or more elsewhere. Young then went on to mock Bouton for confessing to anxiety about his pitching and suggested that Bouton should drink to get over it. And then he defended Mickey Mantle against Bouton's revelations that Mantle drank a lot and wasn't nice to fans and reporters by arguing that Mantle might have been a 220 hitter if he didn't drink. Case closed. All of this was Young's way of complaining that Bouton broke the code. Nowhere did Dick Young or anyone else who attacked Ball 4 dispute the accuracy of the book. They disputed Bouton's right to tell it. That tells you something about Dick Young. What really offended him was that Ball 4 unmasked the compliant sports press as collaborators and mythologists, salty than their predecessors, but still part of an inside game that they wanted to control. That was clear in an item in Young's column on May 31st in which he used Bouton's disgruntled ex-Yankees teammate Joe Pepitone as a proxy to attack Bouton's assault on the fiction of lionizing players, phony heroes in Bouton's words. I don't care that you write about me, but why tear down Mantle, Young quoted Pepitone saying. He's a star, man. He was great. We should all be so great. 
Young followed up by using Pepitone to slander Bouton personally. Why didn't he write that he's the horniest bleep in baseball? On June 3rd, after Bowie Kuhn met with the pitcher but didn't punish him and Bouton privately and then publicly refused to apologize for the book, Young wrote, It is the deceit that Jim Bouton must live with. It is the deficiency of moral values that he should think of next time he says he is not sorry, the next time he boasts of having created a social commentary. All other things are secondary. What a sanctimonious prick. Bouton, though, treated Young like the troll he was. When the book came out, Bouton was pitching for the Astros, and he ran into Young in the visitor's clubhouse at Shea Stadium. Bouton waved. Young said, hi, Jim. Bouton replied, hi, Dick. I didn't know you were talking to social lepers these days. Well, Young said, I'm glad you didn't take it personally. Bouton made that the title of his follow-up book, published in 1971, which recounted the reaction to Ball Four, which had become the best-selling sports book of all time. Bouton dedicated I'm Glad You Didn't Take It Personally to Dick Young and Bowie Kuhn and all those other faceless heroes of the bloody war to protect America from the small truths about baseball revealed in Ball Four. Josh, what's your first day? On Sunday afternoon, after I watched Novak Djokovic beat Roger Federer at Wimbledon, I learned that something else amazing had just happened in England in sports. At Lord's Cricket Ground, England beat New Zealand to win its first ever Cricket World Cup, and it did so in a totally remarkable fashion that I did not understand even a little bit. To be clear, I'm not bragging about being ignorant here. I don't like to do that. It's not my thing. Ignorant. Uh, I'm sure I would understand cricket if I'd grown up with it, but there are a lot of rules. And if you're not familiar with those rules, it can be hard to catch up. And so knowing that something called a super over had been involved, Stefan, but not knowing what a super over was, I asked our listeners, the hang up listeners to help us out. I put out a call for folks to call in and explain in 15 seconds what happened on Sunday at Lord's Cricket Ground. I'm going to start with one of our all-time favorites, uh, a listener who has been faithfully reporting on cricket on the Hang Up and Listen Facebook page for years. This was his moment. Let's listen. Hi, Josh. This is Tim Lowell, your cricket fan. (laughs) Where do I start with this thing? I mean, we'll start with the beginning. Uh, 241 for New Zealand. They batted first. That's how many runs they had. So England had to match that or beat it. And alas, Stefan, our 15 seconds are up. You can't laugh when you're giving this report. Tim actually provided us with more than two minutes of content, and I love him for that dearly. But we need to hear from more listeners. Let's go to Meredith from Houston. Hello, Meredith. So the game ended in a tie during regulation between New Zealand and England, who were the hosts and also the favorites. So they went into this weird tiebreak rule, and then the... Um, tie-break ended in the tie, so then the game was decided by some odd tie-breaking penalty about something that happened during the regulation. Hope that helps. Bye. That actually did help a little bit. Yeah. Thanks, Meredith. That was helpful. We know that there was a weird tiebreaker, but how did we get to that weird tiebreaker? Let's hear from Charles from Kansas City. In the uh, form of cricket that's played in the ICC World Cup, each team faces uh 300 ball deliveries in order to score as many runs as possible uh, before those 300 deliveries are up or 10 of their batsmen make out. In the event the score is tied after each team faces 300 deliveries, 
Uh, each team faces six additional deliveries. Okay, more useful intel. Back to the tiebreaker, Stefan. Thankfully, we had an English gentleman call in. This is James from England. He is now living in Pennsylvania. Let's hear from James. I don't know how familiar you are with soccer, but it was basically the equivalent of a penalty shootout. Um, each team having six pitches to uh, score as many runs as possible. Um, in the end, England and New Zealand were tied after the six balls, but because um, England scored more boundaries, I guess, more home runs, if you will, um, throughout the course of the entire game, they were crowned champions. You get that, Stefan? Yeah, that was pretty succinct. So boundaries, otherwise known as a six, mm-hmm. that's when you hit the ball over the fence, right? Yes. And so it seems like what happened, my understanding, based on putting all this information together, the game was tied, tried to break the tie, did not succeed in breaking the tie. And so they went to a tiebreaker that involved looking back at, over the course of the entire game, who had the most boundaries, who had the most sixes, who had the most home runs, as James helpfully put it. This is like how in soccer, there are some games, some formats where they break the tie by looking at who had the most corners, most corner kicks, which is weird and bad. But the funny thing is, maybe I'm not looking in the right places. I didn't see or hear people talking about how this was weird or bad. Did you see anybody talking about how this was I mean, weird or bad? I'd be lying if I said I read <laughs> more than like one story about the match? Mostly on Twitter, everyone was saying it was amazing. It was remarkable. It was great. But maybe we need another analogy. Let's hear from Rich Valentine. Imagine a Game 7 NBA final between the second best teams in each conference. After the regula- after regulation, the game is tied. One overtime is played and one of the teams misses a buzzer beater, so it's still tied. Instead of playing another overtime, whoever made more threes during regulation and overtime is declared the winner. And that is my 15-second summary of what happened today, and that was unbelievable. Thank you. I got to say, he nailed it. His explanation was 15 seconds, and then he added that little, it was incredible commentary, which will give him, you know, we'll give him space for that. Thank you. Well done. Thank you, Rich. Let's wrap it all up. We had one caller who nailed the format, stayed pretty close to the time limit, summed things up well, captured the facts on the ground, but also the spirit of this magical event. Let's listen. Hi, my name is Chaitanya Chitale, and I'm here to explain the Cricket World Cup final in 15 seconds or less. So here goes. In World Cup, each team gets to bat for 300 pitches, and after 600 pitches, the scores were tied, so each team got six more pitches. And after 12 pitches, the scores were tied again, and so the team that scored more boundaries, that is the equivalent of a home run, won, and that was England. This is incredible. It has never happened before, and this was the match of the lifetime. Thank you. Match of a lifetime. That was great. That was really nice. Thank you, listeners. I feel like I know more about cricket. I know more about how England beat New Zealand, and that is a weird tiebreaker. I think we can confirm that Meredith had it right. Weird tiebreaker. It was a weekend of tiebreakers. It was a weekend of tiebreakers. Weird tiebreakers. That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. Don't listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out. Go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here, I'm guessing you might want even more hangup. In our bonus segment this week, Stefan and I discuss how many points we could win off Serena Williams. Every time some women's soccer hating troll says, oh, the U.S. women lose to U16 boys teams. They suck. 
it's a way to diminish women's accomplishments and abilities. Is that true that they lose to U16 boys teams? They do. You know, not to some local U16 boys teams, but to national level U16 boys teams. And the reason they lose is because U16 boys are basically adult-sized men. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash plus. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>